Hello and welcome to yet another instalment of our Nucleus Wealth Insight series. Just a quick reminder that the following presentation is general information only and does not take into account your personal circumstances. Whilst Nucleus Wealth aims to present informing and sometimes entertaining content, please consult your investment professional, financial advisor, or better yet, speak to us before making any decisions based on any of the themes discussed in today's presentation. And don't forget that this is a live presentation, so feel free to drop any questions you like in the chat box below and we can answer them along the way. If you're watching this after the event, make sure you attend the next one so you too can participate in the live Q&A section of our presentation. Our presenters today include myself, Tim Fuller, a certified financial advisor who's worked with hundreds of clients over the years, helping to make the complex simple for companies such as AMP, Mercer and independent advisories. We also have David Llewellyn-Smith, co-author of The Great Crash of 2008 with Ross Garneau, founder of the internationally acclaimed Diplomat magazine and now chief editor of the enormously popular Macro Business Financial blog. Finally, we have Nucleus Wealth's Head of Investments, Damien Klassen, whose 25 years in the world of finance has seen him as the founding partner and head of research at analyst firm Aegis Equities, head of quantitative strategy at Wilson HTM, and was responsible for mining energy and big data in the $60 billion global quantitative equity fund at Schroeder's, who are a multinational asset management company. And for more information, please check out the our people section at www.nucleuswealth.com. So yes, hello and welcome to yet another instalment of Nucleus Insights. And uh, we've called this one the Aussie Dollar Doom. So um, obviously uh, mid-April uh, just gone, we, we saw a, a top out of the Aussie dollar versus the, the US dollar at around 78 cents. And it has since uh, had quite a sustained fall since then. Uh, particularly relevant to uh, people that have got investments overseas and of course um, clients of ours are certainly in that boat. So let's jump into it. Um, before I do actually, uh, we do as always uh, have a, a chart pack available um, in through PDF that you can download um, and you can jump over to our web website to grab that. And uh, also if you're listening on the podcast, um, you, you can get that through iTunes and uh, any Android podcast as well. So we'll jump into the, the agenda today. So we've got uh, a, a bit of a reheat, I guess, of a, of a February uh, podcast, a, a webinar that we did on the, on the Aussie dollar. Um, and we're going to be running back over the five drivers valuation model, including Chinese growth and Australia's terms of trade, interest rate differentials, investor sentiment, technicals, and then the relative strength of the US dollar. We'll then be looking at uh, an emerging market, markets crisis that, uh, that, may be, that may be emerging in the future, uh, and then, of course, reflect this back into investment impacts on, on our portfolios and the things we do every day at Nucleus Wealth. So we'll jump into it, and I have uh, sitting across from me David Llewellyn-Smith. Welcome, David. Hi, Tim. And uh, I think you're nice and loud there. We've just got a bit of feedback that uh, the microphones are a little bit low, so hopefully we've fixed that in, in this podcast. But um, welcome, David, and uh, we'll kick off the uh, the Aussie dollar five drivers with Australian and global growth. Great, thank you. Well, yeah, the five drivers model is the MB fair valuation model or fair value model for the Aussie dollar. Uh, it's what we use to, to sort of assess where uh, the currency should be at any given time. Uh, the first of the five drivers uh, is Australian and global growth, although very often uh, that can be sort of parsed as Chinese growth and Australia's terms of trade. Uh, <coughs> so um, looking at where that is today, uh, we've had a rebound obviously over the last two years, uh, both globally and in China, and you can see that in that that last hump and the China broad credit chart, which was the fundamental driver of the lift. Sure. Uh, however, over the last sort of 12 months, that's obviously tapered off and is falling actually quite sharply now. So uh, that, that leads us to conclude that Chinese growth is going to come off, uh, not, not crash by any means, but come off at a reasonable rate. As we've discussed many times in the recent weeks, we see China slowing slowly this time because 
a lot of that credit uh, deleveraging is is less impactful on the real economy in this cycle. Nonetheless, we do expect the construction economy to slow, especially sort of from mid-year this year uh, and then to continue into next year. Sure. So that means falling bulk commodity prices, which takes us to the second chart there, and that's the terms of trade. You cannot overstate the importance of this to the value of the dollar. Uh, if you chart the dollar against the terms of trade, it has a very, very strong correlation uh, since the float, especially. Uh, and as you can see, we had this monstrous boom, of course, of the, the mining super cycle, which drove the Aussie up to like 100 $110, US. Then the big uh, post-2011 correction, uh, which, which you know, came through fits and starts until uh, the end of 2015, uh, and then China, you know, kicked off another round of, of stimulus, uh, that, which is what we saw in the credit chart, and the big rebound there in the terms of trade, uh, and what that that orange line is our forecast for what comes over the next kind of uh, decade or so, uh, and obviously that's pure speculation. But what it's supposed to represent is a steadily slowing China, punctuated by, uh, you know, occasional periods of stimulus. Okay, sure. You know, a, a basic view is that China will slide inexorably towards a kind of Japanese stagnation. Wow. Okay. Uh, and. So probably will avoid outright crisis because uh, it has it owns its own banks etc and so it can can stimulate when necessary even when they're all choked up with bad debt. Yep. And so we see this this kind of jagged line as China slows over the next decade and commodity, bulk commodity prices correct to uh, historical average prices uh, and below them actually because they think the build out's you know too big. Okay. For for uh, iron ore, especially coking coal is better. Thermal coal uh, obviously faces structural challenges as well, vis-a-vis -vis decarbonisation. So that's a fundamental driver for a falling Australian dollar over a very long period of time. Okay. So that's our first driver. Sure. Moving on to uh, interest rate differentials. Second one, of course, is, and this is the second. Uh, not just in, in terms of this presentation, but probably in terms of importance okay. as well. Uh, and this is just the global carry trades that, that uh, fly around the earth seeking, you know, hot money returns Sure. in, yep. in higher interest rates in different jurisdictions. As you can see, during the uh, terms of trade boom, Australian interest rates flew, flew far higher than the US uh, to, you know, post-float record highs. Um, and so there's obviously a relationship between this chart and the last one. Yep. Uh, and since 2011 has been on a one-way swan dive straight down uh, and is now, in fact, uh, we can sort of stand up and congratulate, I think, the two-year spread for cracking the half century. Okay. Just in the last 24 hours. Uh, we're now about 52 basis points to the negative versus US interest rates. Wow, yep. Which makes it phenomenally cheap to sell Australian dollars, basically, for global markets. Uh, for instance, you know, the last time the two-year was at this level, the Aussie dollar was around 53 cents, right. something like that. Yep. Uh, but the difference today is that you've got much higher terms of trade. So Australian mm. income is better, even though the interest rate differential is far, far worse. Mm. So those two balance out as a higher currency, uh, even though... You know, it's never been cheaper uh, to sell Australian dollars. As and so, so as and someone put it the other day. And so, as you say there, the, the difference being, um, and referring back to that first driver, that with the falling terms of trade, we're just going to see a reversion back to the days of old in the in the uh, in the fifty cent sort of region potentially. Uh, I think so. Yes, um, depending on how it plays out domestically with housing and Australia's own deleveraging, we may even go to record lows in the four. 40s. Okay, wow. I mean, it gets pretty speculative at that point, but if, if Australia is forced into quantitative easing or supporting house prices and banks, you, 
you know, it's it's actually the not, falls not, not that implausible. Yeah, yeah sure. Okay, Damien. Yeah, yes, it's, well, worth, it's worth saying that they're they're downside cases. Uh, they're, they're not the, like the stand. That's not our base case for investment in terms of those sides. So I think I think from an investment perspective, we're certainly looking at at the sixties being and, and the low sixties being being quite likely. Uh, and you know, a lot of our portfolios are sort of based around that type of that that type of view. Um, with the the risk, if you know a number of dominoes happen to to fall at the same time, and you you, uh, you know, these are, these are negative outlying scenarios, then you sort of end up in the in the fifties. And as David said, you know if you if you paint a negative enough picture, and there's enough enough dominoes fall at the same time, and and there's other um, uh, things happening worldwide, then then you get these um, even you know even even lower as terms of the 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 downside. But that's not our base case. Okay, sure. Thanks, thanks, Damien. And um, that's right. Although I will say, I think the base cases could can canvas the fifties. Okay, comfortably. Uh, so moving on to the next chart, which is still in the discussion of interest rate differentials, I just thought I'd do a bit of a before and after. We showed this chart in February, and it shows that the recent divergence between the ten-year spread, U.S. Australian dollar spread. Uh, and the rising Australian dollar is unprecedented. Mm. Now, that was driven, as I said before, by the terms of trade being better, but, you know, it's a very good bet that those two are going to reconverge. Uh, and so moving to the next chart, you'll see that that uh, has actually begun. The 10-year spread has fallen much further and the Aussie dollar has started to break. Mm. Mm. Uh, so that's that's differentials, which are looking, you know, more and more bearish for, okay. the, for the currency. Uh, so moving to our third driver, uh, investor sentiment. Uh, there's no easy way to measure this, but as a proxy for it, we just refer to the um, CFTC positioning, okay, uh, which gives you a snapshot of, of sort of net bearish or bullishness in the big players, the big speculative players. And at the moment, when that when that blue clustering line is above zero then you sort of have a net bullish position in the market sure and below is is uh, net bearish and at the moment it's basically neutral mm -hmm. very modestly bearish uh, and as you can see we've come off a fairly bullish run through 2016-17 uh, and prior to that a very bearish run mm. uh, post-2011 as China adjusted to slower growth so what that tells you is uh, uh, there's plenty of room to go either way. Market positioning is not stretched at all. So if the bearish scenario plays out, uh, there's plenty of plenty of room for the market to get a lot more short the Australian dollar, a lot more. Okay. Um, and conversely, if something happens, if China stimulates again, uh, the US was forced, say, to stop tightening for some reason, then uh, you could see a big push bullish. Okay. All right, um, fair enough. So technicals are neutral. Uh, sorry, rather sentiment, sentiment is yep. neutral. Uh, so moving to our fourth driver, this is technicals, chart technicals. Now some some will simply look at this and say voodoo, and I don't blame them. <laughs> uh, but in my experience, I've known a lot of technical traders over the years, and uh, although it's not something that I would ever rely on to make an investment case, in terms of helping with timing and entry points, exit points, etc., it, it actually works, okay. Uh, in my experience, like certainly not doesn't work one hundred percent of the time. But I know technical traders that do nothing else and make a mozza. Yeah, right. Okay, uh, and go. that that's not luck. Mm. Um, so, looking at the chart for the Aussie dollar versus the US, you can see that in the very long term, this is the weekly chart, by the way. So, in the very long term, there's still an uptrend in place since the big lows at the turn of the millennium. Uh, well, since then, we've obviously had some huge moves, but since the 2011 top or 2012 top, it's been a big move down. And then again, uh, you know, through through the last two years, we've had this, this quite sustained uptrend for the various reasons already discussed. You can see a rising channel there uh, to, to paint that picture. But recently, just in the last few weeks, you can see that channel has broken, uh, which is a bearish signal in technical terms. And uh, we've also taken out the low uh, from last year. Uh, can't remember around November. Um, and so we are in the process of establishing a downtrend suddenly. 
Okay. Uh, and and so there are a number of signals there to suggest that a reversal in what's a bullish pattern is underway, and you could see that as as a double top, uh, a bearish double top on the rising trend as well. Uh, my personal view is that the long-term uptrend is going to break as well, and we're going to go to some pretty healthy new lows. Okay. But the point is, at this stage, when a technical analyst looks at this, they're going to be bearish. Uh, and so now moving to uh, to the fifth driver, um, and this is, is the other side of the major cross, which is the US dollar. Uh, and this is where, obviously, it starts to get pretty complex when we've got to tackle what's driving that currency as well. Absolutely. But uh, the recent uh, few weeks has delivered what we were forecasting for this year, uh, which was uh, a rising... A US dollar index, a very strong US dollar, and it's been tearing away now for a few weeks, uh, making the Aussie dollar downdraft much stronger. Sure. Um, there are a couple of reasons for that. Well, there are many reasons for it, but the main reasons, uh, the euro is the is a huge part of the US dollar index. This is, this is a basket of currencies that mm-hmm. make up the value of the US dollar. The euro is a huge component in that. Okay. And uh, it... The euro was on an absolute tear all through the beginning of this year when everyone suddenly thought that the European economy was, was back, and, and it was, in a sense. Uh, it certainly outperformed for the first quarter but and the last quarter of last year, but that's now rolled over pretty decisively. There are reasons to think it's temporary, but there are also reasons to think that the best is behind us yep. and that the rising euro was, is actually to blame in some large part for for snuffing out the European boomlet. Okay. So we think the ECB will be forced to backtrack uh, and stop any plans it has for tightening. Okay. Which means the euro is going to keep falling. And if you look at euro technicals, it's very bearish as well. has a bit more downside in it. So that means the US dollar is likely to rise all by itself. Just that one factor. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, will be important. But... Then you overlay that with the interest rate differentials arguments again and you see a US Fed that's much more hawkish than anywhere else. Sure. US inflation is much higher than anywhere else. Yep. Its labour market is much tighter than anywhere else. Um, you know, the other major crosses, Japan, Europe, uh, UK, etc., all have much more flaccid growth economies and inflation. Uh, US has, of course, its late cycle tax cuts and fiscal stimulus so it's going nuts. Fuel to the fire. Its EPS growth is off the chart, far ahead of everywhere else. Yep. Um, so, you know, given that, um, you know, the interest rate differentials are just getting wider and wider in favour of the US. So we think the US dollar has got good upside ahead of it still. Okay. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So there's <clears throat> so that's your five five drivers model. Uh which, as you can see, if you assess the five of them, uh, four of them are pretty bearish at this point for the Aussie, one of them neutral, but that actually, given the other four are bearish, is also bearish Mm, because there's no positioning issue with regards to driving the currency down further. So I I couldn't paint... Look, uh, it's just a scenario where the Australian dollar could, could very easily and probably will fall a lot more. Okay, sure. You know, obviously, these things come in ebbs and flows. It's very difficult to to forecast precise timing, and you know they're very volatile. So there'll be there'll be periods where it reverses, etc. But uh, we think that the two year uptrend is broken, uh, and we've resumed a new downtrend. The other thing that your listeners that listeners will probably have noted is you can you can forecast these trades and. and try and time them, but uh, the fact is that they happen really fast. Yep. And so if you if you believe in positioning investment for some of these things, you have to be in it and then just believe, you know, back your position, your argument, your data, yep. and at some point it will simply transpire much faster than you can catch it. Yeah, sure. Yep. So, uh, so anyway, yes, the... The cyclical outlook for the Aussie dollar is pretty weak. So, um, just just while you're there, actually, just just before we move on away from the drivers, we've had a question come in, David. Um, 
There's a question here. What what underpins your belief that China will move towards stagnation in a decade? Uh, and it, is it as it is as it seems to be demonstrating all the signs of a power on the rise? And I, I guess we, we probably can answer that in a previous um, <laughs> webinar. But if you like, maybe you just give us the, the pre-C version. Yeah, for, sure. For our listener. Uh, I mean, probably two major points. Uh, one is political; the other one economic. Um, I don't think the the degree of centralisation that we're seeing in China is amenable to a long-term... I'll make this three points, actually. Amenable to long-term economic strength. Uh, you know, like, that plays into the second point, which is it has a big debt problem. Sure. Like, it has supercharged its debt through a construction model uh, that... Uh, sorry, supercharged its growth through a construction model for the last kind of decade or two that's left it with a legacy of huge bad debts yep oh damien just yeah I might, I might just jump in just to comment i guess it, the the thing with the the growth uh within the economy is that the first part of the growth was very good so uh either that whatever debt they were racking up um they, they got enough economic growth to, to to shrink that debt as a percentage of, of gdp so you know you're investing a dollar you're getting back two dollars and everything's great and, it, and, and off you go i guess you're sort of working off a lower base as well was it is that the case absolutely yeah. and and you didn't have as much spare capacity and so the the first the, the initial set of investment was great um it's the latest the last few years of investment where we've really been seeing the growth in debt has has been increasing, but they're not getting the same flowback in the economy. So now you're investing a dollar and getting back thirty cents and right. and, and lower amounts. And so the question is, you know, where where does that actually? Um, yeah, it's it's the the mixture of um, not all debt is bad, but when you're spending when you're increasing your debt dramatically and not getting the growth, that's when it's that's when you get problems. And that's where we're seeing China got the diminishing return problem. That's right, and and the way out of that is to to liberalise and try to inject productivity reform wherever you can. But this is where the political centralisation becomes an issue because it it inhibits that kind of trajectory. You know, because you you've got a an effective dictator and a set of interests at the top of the reform pyramid uh, who you know sometimes, but not often enough have the the uh, collective interest at heart. Sure, you know, um, <laughs> delicately put. I yeah. like that. <laughs> uh, and the third factor I was I was going to nominate is is demographics. Okay, China has an almost perfect overlay for Japanese demographics twenty or thirty years later. Sure. Okay. Uh, and so its huge growth boom has, has been overlaid by a demographic boom, and that's going to go into it's already in reverse. Yep, it's peaked. Uh, so we don't, don't get me wrong, we, we don't see China um, diminishing as a power. We think it'll continue to rise in that sense. Yep. But we think its growth will slow steadily towards developed market rates over the next five to ten years. So, you know, by mid twenty mid mid twenty twenties, I think China will be growing at three percent. Okay. Yep. You know, so it'll it'll, you know. That that obviously short circuits its rise as a new superpower, but it doesn't entirely derail it. No, but obviously then it has a pretty large impact on Australians. Australian oh, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. And and there is also the the potential. It's it's not again. This isn't our base case, but there is a potential downside as well in that. Um, you know the amount of debt that's been racked up, the amount of excess capacity sitting in the system, and you know if you get a, a decent enough accident, that that maybe you could have a big slowdown in terms of um, in terms of that. It's not our base case because we do think the the politics can trump it, but um, you know it is a, a negative. Um, yeah, black swan event. There's a, there's a spectre of a of, an, of a shock that could yeah. that could disrupt it and speed it all up. That's right, but but then there's also the the growth transition people talk about uh, from the the you know, debt-heavy investment economy towards consumption. Yep. Uh, which which is sort of slowly happening as well. Uh, and that's where, again, where you need more reform, but you don't get enough. You just, just get some. Uh, and so all of that just adds up to a sort of slow uh, a grind lower in Chinese growth rates. Okay, sure. Well, hopefully that uh, that answers the question for for our listener. Thanks, David. I'm oh, sorry, I should also say it means means that the growth is less commodity-centric over time as well. As, as you move to consumption-related yeah. demand. Okay, yeah. fantastic. All right, thanks, David. Um, so we'll move into uh, now our uh, the future, looking looking forward. So we've got 
uh, potential for an emerging markets crisis. You might just need to, to step this on out and we'll just have a quick chat about the graph as well for those listening in. Sure, yeah. So, so you know, we've been through the model and what it's indicating about a bearish outlook for the dollar. Uh, this this is the sort of big picture uh Taking taking that model and then pick, sticking it in the bigger picture of what a rising US dollar does to the business cycle. Okay. Uh, so what the chart I've put up here is for emerging markets high yield debt, obviously as you can see it, and as you can see it is rolling over into a nice little dive, mm. uh, and it's done this despite over the last kind of two two or three weeks, despite what has happened in every other market, you know. There'll be days where emerging market equity is up, and it won't won't affect this market at all. This is leading emerging markets lower. This chart. Okay. So these are junk bonds, high yield, high yield debt. So higher risk, higher interest rate, um, emerging market bonds. Uh, now this is this is is what happens when the US dollar starts to rise uh, in the global economy because a lot of these emerging markets have US dollar price debt. Ah, of course. Uh, both in the private and public sectors, and so uh, you know a lot of it's not hedged in the way that uh, you know might be in elsewhere. Sure. And so as as the currencies fall in emerging markets, the debt gets more expensive, and so you start to see these pressures the pressures at the margin. Uh, it also means that um, therefore that interest rates start to tighten. Okay. In these yep. economies, uh, and sooner or later it starts to blow up economies. With, that have external debt. Sure. And we're already seeing that. We've seen the Hong Kong dollar get caned. Okay. And they've managed to sort of stabilize, stabilize that for the time being. Um, Argentina has been blowing up and has needed an IMF bailout already. Uh, Venezuela's been in a bit of trouble. Yep. Uh, and the latest one is Turkey. Right. Where okay. uh, it has quite sizable uh, external US dollar liabilities. And the lira is getting absolutely thrashed. Right. Uh, so, what what basically happens over time is these things build up and up. Um, you know, you you have kind of predictable accidents such as Ecuador, uh, sorry, Argentina, and uh, the like. That you know where you have you know high risk investors that are prepared to lose. And so that's not really that big a deal. That's just markets at play. Sure. But as this thing runs, sooner or later you get someone unexpected finds himself in strife. Arguably, that's what Turkey is. All right. Uh, but if it's not Turkey, it ends up being somebody else. Uh, and so these, very often this is how kind of uh, our business cycles can actually end or you end up with a market crisis of some sort. Um, an emerging market simply reaches a point where it can't pay and you get a default yep. of some sort, and then then your Western banks get sucked in. Right, Because okay. they've done a lot of the lending. The lending, sure. <laughs> okay. And then you've got a market crisis, a financial crisis of some sort. Okay, and, Damien? And, and the second order effect is uh, you know, one of these countries has the problems, uh, a range of other countries that people then look at a range of other countries and go, well, this country is similar, but you know, yeah, it's a few steps behind. I better be the first one to pull my money out of that. Contagion. And then you get Off the you contagion go. effect. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And so some of the countries which might have otherwise been fine end up being you know, the babies thrown out with the bathwater, which is what we saw um, in the financial crisis in terms of the um, you know, places like... Uh, yeah, Financial crisis in in um, in Europe, and we saw it in uh, uh, the Asian crisis, sort of ten years earlier. Okay. And so you know we're sort of we're actually sort of exactly well a little bit sorry a little bit past ten years on. Yep. But it's sort of that every ten years we see one of these things blow up, and we're we're close to due whether whether we do or not at this moment, or whether it lasts for a little bit longer. But you know that is that's that same cycle that keeps rolling over again. Okay. No worries. Thanks, Damien. And the key the key take out of Damien's um, argument is is that once it starts and the contagion is underway, then everybody runs to the US dollar yeah, as okay. a safe haven play. Right. Uh, and that makes it all the worse. You get a feedback loop. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, because uh, some of the debt, obviously a lot of the debt is priced in US dollars, so some of that's repatriating, but then hot money chases that as well. And so you end up with this, this feedback loop to hell until something of sufficient magnitude breaks and then, you know, maybe a central bank steps in. Okay. Uh, the Fed's forced to, to stop its tightening or 
as we saw at the end of 2015, some have called what was what was a meeting of central banks called the Shanghai Accord, where China stimulated the Fed paused briefly, and that was enough to stabilise things for a while, and, and China allowed the currency to rise. Mm. Uh, so. Just, just while I've got you, actually, just uh, while we're on the topic of emerging markets as well, another question here. Um, you mentioned before Venezuela. Uh, there's talk of an oil supply squeeze as a result of Venezuela's production failing and obviously the new uh, events unfolding, uh, unf- unfurling with our favourite uh, American president with the Iran uh, sanctions. Uh, and this will, of course, be hitting supply. Um, thoughts on what impact that might have on the AUD? Oh, this is an interesting one. Um, we don't actually think that there is that much of an oil squeeze, at least in the physical market, Okay. Uh, for a number of reasons. One one is US production is absolutely through the roof. Right. Uh, and is, is um, by all prospects, going to continue to, to rise. Uh, that said, you know, the market is much tighter than it was a few years ago, except that. But, you know, I think the period over which... Uh, global inventories were drawing down is over. I think you know the market's kind of relatively balanced. Okay. Uh, uh, Iran plays in an in- interesting way. It's basically sticking a geopolitical premium back into into oil, which is fair enough. The yep. question is how how much should it be? You know, we think oil should be trading around fifty five dollars, maybe sixty. Okay. Uh, on you know good global growth and an, and providing enough of a price signal to give US um, shale, which is the marginal cost producer, yep. a signal to keep pumping. Okay. Um, but, you know, you can add five bucks maybe for an Iran premium, but we're nearly at 80. Mm. So we think we think it's probably overshot. There's a lot of speculation in it. You know, that uh, if you don't see an immediate escalation in terms of the US... Uh, you know, doing something new to Iran, as like rather than just sort of seeking a new deal, yep, um, or indeed just just making life hard for it. Like if you don't think this is a prelude to to a, to an Israeli attack or some new other new form of aggression towards Iran, then I don't think eighty dollars is justifiable. Okay, economically, um, but I get the geopolitical kind of play on it. Sure. Um, in terms of the AUD, it's it's bullish in as a silo. Yes, um, but if you put it in broader context, doesn't really help that much. Um, we are now almost a net oil and gas exporter. Okay. So as oil rises, it used to hurt our terms of trade, and now it's a slight benefit. Right. Uh, so that's that's um, bullish for yep. the currency um, and. Uh, it is worth noting as well, though, um, a lot of that is is sort of money that goes in and out. So, so most of the big projects, big new projects, are owned by um, by foreigners, and so the they've already spent most. Of, so, Gorgon, for example, you know, roughly five percent of Australia's GDP went into that over a number of years. Yep, um, which was great for the local economy, but but now um, they've got huge tax losses. So they're not paying much. In, in the way of tax, yep, and so the oil price goes up. They make a higher profit, which goes back to Chevron and and a few of their partners, um, which you know the money notionally goes into Australia and then straight back out into the pocket of the shareholders uh, without much tax revenue. So there's not a lot of benefit in the short term from from those. Okay, yeah, sure, and that's made even worse by the uh, the extraordinary behaviour of the East Coast gas cartel. Which I won't go on about, but <laughs> the eyes light up but, there. But we'll save that one for another <laughs> webinar. Yeah, but but I mean, it does mean that um, that a lot of the profits that result from the higher oil price really just never see the light of day in Australia. Sure. Uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, it means higher energy costs for households and business, uh, especially as the A dollar falls. Mm. So it, it's potentially actually a bit of a household shock. Mm. Uh, if the Australian dollar remains weak as we think it will, you know, we could be looking at a dollar eighty oil price, uh, uh, petrol price, petrol price, yep. uh, in the second half of the year, uh, and that would make life very difficult for an income constrained consumer. Absolutely, um, yep. Really hammer retail, uh, and um, you know that in itself will actually drop the Australian dollar 
potentially even more as RBA rate hikes evaporate. Sure. Okay. And we're about to obviously coming into winter now, um, so heating costs are going to be much higher, and we we'll get to see the full the full face of higher gas prices on on people's heating bills. Yep. Okay. And electricity bills. Sure so, thing. So yeah, mixed mixed impacts, but um, if you look at the overall complexity of it, uh, it's probably negative. Okay. I mean the other the other important point actually to make is that these days, you know, the U.S. economy is, has traditionally been seen as vulnerable to higher oil prices, uh, but these days it's bullish for the US, um, you know, being the marginal cost producer and shale expands dramatically. Yep. Oil's not high enough yet, although it's getting there to really weigh on the consumer, but it's definitely high enough to, to tri- trigger a whole lot of round of new investment in shale. Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's, so it's, in that sense, it's US dollar bullish. So yep. you've been seeing the US dollar rise along with the oil price. Okay. Yep. And, and it is worth noting. Uh, so the way the shale guys work is they get a payback much faster than than uh, than most of the other uh, most of the old school ones. So so under the uh, if you've got a traditional oil well, you know, in in deep water or something like that, you're talking you know, ten to twenty years to get paybacks and and, wow. and and longer in terms of you know the way you're setting it up. So you you just can't hedge that far out. You have you, you companies need to make an ass- assessment about the the oil that's going to come in and and uh, make their investment and and you know roll with the price. Uh, the benefit for oil the shale guys is they get sixty uh, percent plus the oil comes back in the the first sort of eighteen months or so of the of of running a well and then it sort of tails off. So what happens with a lot of the uh, a lot of the smaller guys and, and even some of the bigger guys is they they have got a well that's ready to go. Um, they they get some debt to back it yep. and they take out the hedging because they can do it over. It's quite quick to get up and running, so they can take out a hedging, say for two thousand and twenty, uh, lock in their uh, the price, sure, and then that covers the debt. And then after that, everything left is a cream. So okay. basically, you know, you use the the first eighteen months of all this production coming in to pay off your debt, and then after that. Uh, everything else is is, is the ready for, yep. for for the producer. So what that means, though, is that um, where I find it quite interesting is is when you start looking out at the oil curve. So twelve months ago, we had oil prices back down in the fifties, and um, if you wanted to hedge your two thousand and twenty ish two thousand um, oil, it was fifty two dollars ish that you'd pay. Okay, yep. so it's slightly higher than the, the spot price. So now we've got oil up towards eighty dollars. The price in 2020 is still around $52 because as soon as the price goes up, all these shale guys go, "Fantastic! I'll take I'll take some of that, lock it in, yep. set me up another well." So, um, you know, there's there's certain you know the positive and negativity in terms of the the short term stuff, but certainly you can you can very much see the effect on the oil price curve is that at that sort of longer term, the shale guys are just as soon as that price jumps up. You know, above fifty-two dollars, they're they're all in for for new wells and 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 everything like that. So that's sort of uh, there's a certainly longer term constraints in terms of the, in terms of the oil price and from there. Okay, no worries, thanks, Damien. Yeah, it's fascinating to um, I guess to reflect on the oil price coming from the short term and and the long term sort of production part of the supply chain. So very good. Um, we're finishing up. We're finishing up with the the emerging markets crisis. Uh, yeah, that, so that just to wrap up then, basically, cyclically, we think the picture is bearish for the AUD. Uh, I would I'd argue structurally it's bearish as well. Um, if you think that the Australian sort of long cycle uh, of debt accumulation in households has topped out, which it very much looks like it is, that's where you get into discussions about the Royal Commission and deleveraging, etc. Sure. Yep. Uh, but even the best cases really see that as as peaked which is why you know you see regulators so concerned about household debt these days uh so that means you know that the aod comes under quite a lot of stress as well given interest rates well we think they're going to fall frankly but but even the most hawkish case is for next to no rises yep uh so so cycle and structure both bearish okay all right Lovely, and uh, a great summation there to our five drivers and and the future. Um, So we'll 
move across now to um, the, the final part of, uh, of our webinars, which of course is investment impacts, the things that we look at uh, when we uh, run our portfolios every day at Nucleus Wealth. And um, we might just begin by uh, reheating some, uh, and this is literally a copy and paste from our February uh, Aussie dollar special that we did, webinar we did, on uh, some thoughts of where it was going. Damien, yeah. um, the past, uh, have, we, have we got it right? <laughs> Well, to date we have. Um, you know, it's always. I think there's uh, you, certainly in currency markets. You know, they are relatively volatile, and you'll we'll go through periods where you're getting it right and periods where you're getting it wrong. But you know, in in February we were talking a lot about the reflation uh, in terms of world markets and and this monetary tailwind for emerging markets and 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 commodities that came from the U.S. dollar, and that we that we weren't expecting that to um, to continue, and that mid year, um, you know, we'd be the 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 U.S. dollar in particular. Uh, sorry, the Aussie dollar in particular would be running into some sort of fundamental headwinds as China slows. Um, and so you roll forward three months and where you know most much of that's come to pass, uh, we still think there's there's further uh, downside for the uh, or further slowing within China as as David was was speaking about. Uh, it is interesting now that we've got this monetary headwind for a lot of the emerging markets uh, and commodities as well. so there's sort of the risk of a, of an accident there. So it's in effect it's swung around. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay. Um, and so, look, we're still. I guess we've got this long-term view that this is where we're headed, and uh, the Aussie dollar is going to rise at, at times, and there'll be, you know, it'll add three, four, five, six cents um, within this downtrend. We think that the 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 current run, we're sort of we, we look upon a lot of our investments as, as coming in waves. Um, we're certainly not positioning ourselves for an Aussie dollar rise. Um, you know, we're lightening up in a few areas. We'd we'd made a bit of a switch from um, Europe into the US. And uh, had a few, only a few more U.S. companies, and you know, the further the U.S. dollar rises, the more we'll start looking at that, and 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 possibly switching back or switching to to other other areas, and and as well, a lot of our European investments, um, we've certainly loaded up our European investments. We've been looking for for companies that that are, are exposed to the U.S. Sure. So we've been sort of, you know, all in on this idea that, or well, not all in, sorry, but substantially in. On, on this idea that um, we needed to play for for a US dollar late cycle boom and 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 the Trump tax cuts sort of adding more fuel to the fire, and that and that seems like it's playing out now. Yeah, that certainly played out. We we were carrying a fair bit of our cash in in US dollars as well, so um, you know not not certainly not taking um, you know massive bets, but but where we could, we at, at the margin we were sort of holding ca extra cash in in US dollars. True. Sure. Um, and so that's starting to lighten up now in terms of a in terms of a theme. We'll 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 drift off a little bit as 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 the US dollars as the dollars fall on. We still keep that longer term view, but um, you know we'll probably look for then if if the Aussie dollar does rise and in, over over the shorter term we'll we'll look to 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 put some of those trades back on. Um, but we certainly do want exposure. Um, to to a continually falling Aussie dollar, it's just that um, you know, as we said, these things move in waves, and so we've we've pretty quickly gone from from the eighties back to to the low seventies, and and so I wouldn't be surprised if you see a, a bit of a rise, but but over the longer term, we're we're still sticking with this uh, with our investment view. Yep. Okay. Um, and um, I guess just a couple of reflections there on what we've spoken about today. So one being. Uh, we'll just quickly touch on the the resources side. So obviously there is a, there's potential for upside in U.S. shale producers. Have we um, have, have we got the ability to be exposed to that in the in the Misky Misky World Index yeah. in which we operate in? Yeah. The the, the issue with the the um, with the U.S. shale guys, and we have looked long and hard at, at whether we whether we invest in that. That was a bit of a theme. So, so from a, and that gives you a, a good insight into how we, we we tend to look at our portfolio. Is as as thematically we we were. We were viewing the the higher oil price as being positive for for the U.S. shale in particular, and and we sort of resolved to say let's add some U.S. shale to our portfolio. The the issue was we couldn't find any that was uh, sufficiently cheap or or high enough quality. Sure. And and part of this is because uh, these companies are very much looking for volume growth and profitability is is a bit is taking a bit of a backseat. Okay. And I spoke about the, what they do with the debt in terms of the hedging, and so what that means is a lot of them are quite highly geared. Sure. Uh, and um, which certainly relative to other oil companies, which which is a positive in terms of the way they do it, that that, that there isn't as much risk, but there's certainly that whole um, the whole issue of trying to find a stock that's that's both Good quality and cheap, or, or at least, um, you know, if it's good quality and moderately expensive. The, the problem with most of the shale guys is that they haven't really made very good profits. Um, their returns are being ploughed straight back in, 
And so you really do need to take a, a, a um, either a short-term trading view in terms of I was going to say, yeah, let's ride the oil price higher. Sure. Or you need to um, have a very good, a very positive long-term view, and we don't have a very positive long-term view uh, on this. And it sort of sounds it's sort of a systemic part of the shale um, producer's nature to have a fairly short lifespan of projects and and profit. Well, not well, perhaps profitability, depending on how how well they strike it. But um, yeah, yeah, sure, okay. And the other one too, just quickly, was. Um, uh, the, the, oh, the discussion around the emerging market. So it was you know, some scary talk there of contagion risk and high, high yield debt, debt rolling off mm. uh, in our portfolios. Um, is you know is that is that a concern or is it is it something that you know we 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 assess on on merit in yeah. terms of exposure to emerging markets? We don't have very much exposure at all to emerging markets. Uh, look, the issue for emerging markets for me from a uh, from a stock picking perspective is that there are a lot of uh, individual issues with particular stocks that are that are hard to assess from a distance. Um, we're hap- we're much happier um, having a universe of large liquid stocks where um, you know, there's so we, we invest in about the 1600 biggest companies in the world, which is equivalent to uh, the A650, a little bit a little bit more than the A650. But it, what it means is the companies are very well followed. Um, there's lots of um, uh, I guess there's lots of analyst focus, and 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 you can find information about it about companies that that's that's in the public domain, and and you, you're sort of competing on a more even footing with with people around elsewhere. Sure. Our, our concern with a lot of the emerging market companies is the corporate governance isn't as good, and that you're um you know for a lot of the companies that are, are quite expensive um in 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 the sectors that we quite like. Uh, and you add that extra layer of corporate governance issues and 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 just not having full visibility, sure. and that sort of means that we go we sort of step aside and say, okay, we're happy to run the sort of broader portfolio for for people and and leave the emerging markets to to more specialist managers. Okay, fair enough. No, I can uh, concur. I think it would be a pretty fun fun area to play in for those that have um, <laughs> that have got the experience in it. But um, broad speaking, over over our portfolios. Uh, to no go zone for now. Okay, David. I'll, I'll just add that uh, um, the portfolio allocations at the moment we hold quite a bit of cash. We do uh, because we see ourselves as late cycle, and so you never know just just how late. Uh, and so you've got that built-in hedge, but the, we also see this developing emerging markets pressure as as a bit of an opportunity um, because. It's it's what I'm calling uh, a reverse decoupling, where you have this tearaway U.S. economy on one hand driving, you know, huge uh, EPS growth, sure, and and high asset valuations, uh, you know, probably with tax cuts that have EPS benefits right through next year as well. Um, at the same time that you will have stress emerging in emerging markets and commodities, which to some extent might be seen as a positive in holding down inflation on one hand, but also um, trashing the Australian dollar. Mm. Mm. Uh, and so you put those two things together and you could actually, over the shortish period term, see rising to develop market stock prices and a quite serious downdraft in the Australian dollar. Wow, okay. And so you get it, obviously, a, a bit of a double boom mm, mm. out of that. So that's where the emerging markets stresses play into our thinking as an opportunity at the moment. Okay. It's just a matter of finding the stocks that meet the, the metrics on quality and value and, and, and everything else that we, we put that's into right. it. Yeah. Okay, no problems. All right, thanks very much. Well, thanks, David. Thanks, Damien. Um, I got I certainly got a lot out of that, and I hope everyone did, else did as well. Um, and now we've got, as always, uh, some information about us and uh, how you can invest with us if, uh, if you're interested. Nucleus Wealth and the Macro Business Fund was put together to help give you access to quality, well-researched stock analysis and superior macroeconomically-minded asset allocation. We use technology to help us provide a service typically only available to high net worth and sophisticated investors at a fee level that rivals the more basic solutions available to these everyday investors. We do this by using separately managed accounts, which allows clients to enjoy unparalleled transparency in what they own and why. It also means that each client effectively owns their own separate and discrete share portfolio, which is managed by us. 
We have partnered with Linear Asset Management, who are backed by the ANZ Bank for cash management, and JP Morgan, one of the biggest banks in the world, as custodian of your assets. We feel that this structure is the gold standard for your financial protection. In addition to this, we offer 19 separate and individual ethical screens that you can use to help tailor your investment. To ensure that your money is not being used to support companies that deal in areas and practices that you feel are important. By eliminating the areas that are only important to you, you keep the potential for higher returning areas that you might otherwise be ambivalent about. And these would typically be ruled out in broader ethical products currently available in the market. The name Nucleus comes from our ability to provide the core holdings of a client's portfolio, allowing them the time to explore areas that may be of interest or they may have experience in. We also offer a complete investment solution for those who don't have time to coordinate their own investments. Our investment team has decades of experience in world markets and we have access to a global team of stock analysts. By removing the layers of middlemen that typically sit between your money and the markets, we've been able to reduce fees and provide unparalleled transparency in the solution we provide. For more information on what we can do for you, please call 1300 623 863 or contact us through www.nucleuswealth.com. And coming up next week uh, on our next instalment of Nucleus Insights, we've got uh, a look at the uh, the ethical screening and uh, portfolio uh, selections that you can have on uh, when you invest with with Nucleus Wealth. Um, we've called it ethical impacts on your bottom line. So we'll be just fielding a couple of um, questions and queries from uh, current and um, and prospective clients actually that we thought we'd uh, we'd put together as a as a webinar to run through uh, exactly how uh, some ethical choices can impact uh, either positive or negatively on your portfolio and also uh, we're rolling out a couple of new features uh, for our for our portfolio as well so same bat time same bat channel Thursday the seventeenth of May at twelve thirty p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time uh, and if you'd like to register interest for that head over to proton.nucleuswealth.com. Um, and we can uh, make sure that you uh, you get reminded to do it and also uh, be sent through the, the survey at the end. We're also available now on iTunes and uh, any uh, reputable Android podcast uh, player as well. So head over to uh, bit.ly forward slash Nucleus Insights, or you can also search us on iTunes uh, and Podcast Addict or any other Android, uh, major Android uh, podcast delivery program uh, or app. Uh, and also feel free to uh, leave us a review if uh, if you like what you uh, like what you hear, um, and uh, that that helps us uh, get some further traffic in in the wider uh, realm, and um, we can go from there. So finally, uh, Matthew will be sending around for those that have signed up our uh, survey to give us a little bit of feedback on how we've gone today, and also of course uh, any new ideas or topics you'd like for us to put together a, we a webinar on. Uh, we're more than happy to hear your your uh, choices and, and suggestions and uh, put something together for you. So on that note uh, thanks very much for listening i got a lot out of today and i hope you did as well and we look forward to catching you at the next one cheers